Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. In recent months, there has been intense speculation in the media and in policy forums about China's involvement in the Pacific. In turn, this has raised questions about Australia's historical and continuing role in the region, as well as evolving issues around sovereignty and neo-colonialism. In this event, you'll be hearing from the Honourable John Brumby, former Premier of Victoria, currently President of the Australia-China Business Council and incoming Chancellor of La Trobe University, and also Miss Makareta Komai, Manager and Editor of the Pacific Islands News Association. The event was chaired by Professor Nick Bisley, Head of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. It was co-hosted with La Trobe University's Pacific Research Community and the China Studies Research Centre on the 20th of September 2018. Well, thank, thank you very much and uh, delighted, delighted to be here and to see such a, um, a good crowd and thank you for the lovely introduction and to uh, Margareta who will speak uh, shortly after me, uh, to Nick I think who's going to ask us all the hard questions, those that don't come from the audience. Um, I'm delighted to, uh, to be here. I've just got a few slides I'm going to run through at the start for Margareta and I are going to do 10 or 12 minutes each and then and then we'll move into the panel uh, session. Uh, I talk quite a bit about uh, China. Um, I'm relatively new to the China space. My first visit to China was in 2000 when I was the Treasurer of Victoria. I'd never been there before. Uh, but I came back with a view about China uh, which was um, that its momentum uh, and its growth would drive huge economic opportunities uh, for Australia and our region. And I don't think I was wrong in that conclusion. Uh, we've seen probably half of all of Australia's economic growth since the GFC has been generated by our trade with China. Um, a lot of that has been in the resources area, but increasingly into services, into tourism and of course in education. Uh, I often speak, get asked to speak about um, leadership. And there's a lovely quote from uh, former President Bill Clinton when he talks about leadership. And one of the attributes, he says, of, of real leadership is the ability to see around corners. And of course, you know, you can't really see around corners. But um, this is a recent speech from the Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe. And it's really just making the point about um, China's contribution uh, to the world economy. And it's just saying they've got four times the population of the US. By the time their income hits half that of the US, their economy will be twice as big. And so that's this whole thing about the world in transition, this shift of economic power from west to east. Not everybody likes that, but it's happening and it's very real. And um, the Reserve Bank Governor uh, sort of spells that out. This is a, a recent speech from Hugh White. Uh, many of you would know as an uh, analyst on foreign affairs and defence, um, and that he's just making uh, a point there again about this tension and interaction between China and the US. And indeed, we see that play out a little in some of the current debates about the Pacific Islands, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight. But um, he's really saying that um, China is going to be there, and we, we need to learn to work with and deal with China. And then, um, of course, uh, the former Chinese ambassador uh, who speaks uh, very uh, often uh, about China. This issue of um, China's uh, 
position in the world? Will they be aggressive and so on? And um, he's just making the point there that China is quite different to the United States. It's utterly dependent on world markets to keep providing it uh, with the resources that it needs for its economic uh, survival. And indeed, um, uh, since 1995, up until 1995, China was self-sufficient in terms of its energy needs and food needs, but since then has had to rely on countries around the world. China, of course, uh, I think we know all this. We know the economic story. It's been a fabulous story for Victoria Victoria and for Australia. You know, of all of the good luck and the good fortune that we've experienced in Australia, nothing has been as remarkable as the growth of China. Our trade today, $183 in two-way trade. As I've said, you see it in tourism, you see it in education, you see it in resources, you see it in wine. Uh, When I was in the federal parliament in the 1980s, Australian wine exports to China were $1.5 million. Today, they're more than a billion dollars. It's our biggest wine market in the world. So we see that in so many uh, ways. It's a very powerful economic story. And so too is it uh, in this changing picture in uh, the Pacific Islands. Because what this graph is showing, so if you look at the dark colour there, the dark colour is uh, China. Uh, and the light colour there is Japan. And it just shows this shift even over the last decade of um, the uh, bilateral trade in the region. It's changing. And again, China is becoming more and more significant. Not unexpected given that in purchasing power parity terms, they are already the biggest economy in the world. They're bigger than the US. They're 16% bigger than the US in purchasing power parity terms. Uh, And if you're Google that, it'll say that by 2030, they'll be about 40% bigger. We've seen quite a few recent challenges in the general sort of Australia-China and Pacific-China relationship. The Financial Review uh, summarised those uh, recently, just about a week ago. I think, again, in this audience, a well-informed audience, you'd be aware uh, of some of these challenges and they put a fair bit of stress on the Australia-China relationship, which 12 to 18 months ago was probably at a high point. Six months ago was probably at a low point. It recovered a little bit with Prime Minister Turnbull's speech at the University of New South Wales a month ago, but Prime Minister Turnbull isn't there anymore. Uh, They just keep rotating out. (laughs) Uh, So there have been uh, some challenges in the the relationship. Uh, The recent decision on... Uh, Huawei too probably wasn't well received in China and there's another decision coming up in the next couple of weeks with Chung Kong Infrastructure out of Hong Kong who are bidding for investment in one of the Australian pipelines and my guess is that'll probably get knocked off by the Foreign Investment Review Board. So so there's been um, some tension in uh, this relationship. When you come to the regional um, tensions, you know, some of you will have seen some of this press, um, former uh, minister in the Turnbull government, Minister Conchetta Wells, made some disparaging comments about a year ago that so I think it was Vanuatu was being taken over by China and they're expanding their military base there. I just thought I should put up that quote from 
the foreign minister of Vanuatu. You can read that. No one in the Vanuatu government has ever talked about a Chinese military base of any sort. I'd hope the upsurge in paranoia about China and Australia is not used to destroy or denigrate the good relationship that Vanuatu has with uh, Australia or indeed um, with, uh, with China. Um, I think moving, moving f forward, um, uh, so that's just a little bit of, of background, uh, but I think uh, moving, moving forward, just a few points I'd make about how we should see the region. And the first, the, the economics is important. It's not everything in the world. Don't pretend that it is. But for the Pacific region, many of those people in the Pacific region have um, very low incomes. Um, many of them have significant health and education issues. And the story of China really has been a story of lifting three quarters of a billion people out of poverty. And so economic development is important. This just shows in China itself, it's just this huge engine room of growth, more people being added to the middle class in China every year than the whole of the Australian population. And their middle class wants what our middle class wants. We want to live long and healthy lives, good education, healthy cities, good environment, quality jobs, trip overseas every now and then and so on. Um, they're no different to us, but that growth in the middle class, as I said, as big as Australia as a whole, drives lots of economic activity. And the other thing that's happening um, is this shift to consumption. A lot of China's growth has been driven by capital investment, but it's shifting to consumption. Consumption of education, travel, and consumption of goods. You see that I mentioned wine, meat, um, nutraceuticals, Swiss, which has been a great success story, you know, the Swiss vitamins here in uh, Melbourne. So um, there are, you know, the economic might that comes out of this is considerable. Um, that's some work we did in the Australia-China Business Council uh, with Shine Wing and Monash University two years ago, but it simply shows that for Australia, the growth of China uh, looking across health, education, tourism, finance and construction can lead to a million new jobs in Australia in the next six years, seven years. And that's a million new jobs uh, on a base of 12 million. When you think about the Pacific Islands or the Pacific uh, in general, um, the Pacific Island communities have 10% of UN voting rights. They have the world's largest ocean resources, including six billion of fisheries. They've got a very valuable ecosystem. They've got a rich cultural heritage and they've got unique tourism offerings. So they've got plenty to, to offer uh, in terms of economic and social development. So I just want to mention a couple of things which I think is relevant to this discussion tonight. Belt and Road Initiative, you've probably heard of Belt and Road Initiative. There are, it's, it's Xi Jinping's signature initiative. Um, history will tell, I guess, how successful it is. I think the debate from people who are more expert on this matter than me would say that it's either going to be a great success or in 10 years' time we'll be talking about Xi Jinping's overreach. Maybe it's, maybe it's too ambitious. But it's basically about uh, trying to reinvigorate all of these ancient trade um, mainland and maritime routes to open up more investment and to open up more trade in the region. You can see what's in it for China. China needs resources. They can't 
feed their own people, they haven't got enough LNG or enough coal or enough uh, iron ore or whatever, or enough wine, enough beef. So they want the security that comes from a variety of supplies. But they're also believers in free trade. You know, Xi Jinping's made that very clear. Very different to Donald Trump in America, who's putting up trade barriers, a very protectionist and backward-looking policy, in, in, my, in my view. Um, at Australia-China Business Council, we're supporters of Belt and Road Initiative. I'll tell you why. I used to make a lot of speeches as Premier and Treasurer of Victoria about the infrastructure needs of Victoria, Australia and our region. There are hundreds of millions of people in our region, whether it's in the Pacific Island community, whether it's in Indonesia, whether it's Papua New Guinea, who are living in abject poverty. And they, they deserve the right to a better quality of life. And they're not going to get that unless there's investment in infrastructure. In Indonesia alone, there are 200 million people who have no water, no electricity, no gas, no sewage. And the only way they're going to get it is through investment in infrastructure and economic development. So I am an unashamed advocate of more investment in infrastructure. And that's exactly what Belton Road is going uh, to do. And uh, it's going to mean, it's, I think it's now signed on by um, 67 countries. Uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, has signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative and it makes PNG the first country in the Pacific to join. Uh, and in fact, Prime Minister O'Neill has integrated PNG's development strategic plan 2010 to 2030 with China's 13th five-year plan and Belt and Road Initiative. And China has also funded the construction of the International Convention Centre in Port Moresby, which is China's largest grant aid project. Um, so it's not a debt-driven project, it's a grant aid project in the Pacific to date, and it's going to be used as the summit for the APEC summit uh, in Moresby in November. Uh, the Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Group is Dame Meg Taylor. She says this on Belt and Road, quote, infrastructure is crucial for growing resilient economies in the Pacific. These building blocks of growth are expensive. They require long-term commitments in supporting complementarity, institutional and policy development. This is one of the reasons why China's assistance is attractive to the Pacific. In response to China's growing influence, we see competing infrastructure initiatives emerging from Japan, the US and Australia. While this could be good news for the Pacific, we must tackle the problem at its cause rather than just getting drawn into the political jousting uh, of uh, others. Uh, Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong has also said that Australia should consider setting up a new infrastructure fund for the Pacific Island nations, uh, and I personally think that would be a good thing. The more, the more support uh, in the region, the better. And of course, one of the reasons we've been seeing more Chinese interest in the Pacific Islands is because Australia has been slashing, let's call a spade a spade, its foreign aid budget you know, over the last decade, right? Um, Britain, by the way, has managed to keep its um, commitment as 0.7% of GDP, but Australia uh, has not. I'll just conclude on this note very quickly. I was very attracted to a speech that former Foreign Minister Gareth Evans made uh, recently and it was well publicised in the Financial Review. And he was really talking about this, he was talking particularly about China, but not just China. I mean, he was saying really the China debate has become uh, really this polarised debate between economic development on one hand and national security issues on the other. Uh, and there's a big gap in the middle and we need to fill that 
gap. And I, so I agree with him on that. And so what he suggested, and it's relevant to our relationship with China, but also with the Pacific Island communities, also I think with Indonesia, how do we find things in common in our foreign policy that we can work together on? So put aside the economic side for a moment, put aside the security side for a moment. Are there issues we can work together on in partnership to provide a better life and a better quality of life in our region? And so that's what Gareth was really talking about. And so he's referring, can we find, um, he calls them public good issues. Uh, so things like working together on climate change. This is a big issue for the Pacific Islands community. I was at a function earlier today where they were talking about one of the Pacific Islands, which is only two metres above the sea line. Already, already in high tides in summer, they're getting wash up into agricultural areas. So working on climate change was interesting even with the new Prime Minister, Morrison, who's been a sceptic on, on climate change. He talked yesterday, I think, about the needs of the Pacific Islands, that climate change was a very real issue for them. Health pandemics, health prevention, things in Indonesia, things like cutting smoking, you know, which are at appalling rates, and where Australia is one of the world leaders in slashing smoking rates. So we can respond. I think we need to work on these public good partnerships so that it's not just this polarising debate uh, about um, about growth and um, uh, and and the security issues. Uh, the final thing I just wanted to say. Uh, so this is the Prime Minister of Samoa, uh, and again uh, he's just saying that it's a good thing, basically, to work on these public good issues. That climate change, disaster risk, they're big, big issues, uh, and so they want to work together uh, and they don't see too many threats out there from China. They want to work together. Uh, and again, a second quote, um, uh, one has the tendency to be bemused by the fact that the reaction is an attempt to hide what we see as strategic neglect. So in other words, there needs to be uh, more investment. The final um, sort of thing I want to mention on this is very quickly is uh, we've seen a, a shift obviously in federal government rhetoric in recent times to talking about the Indo-Pacific and I think if you're in the Pacific you know you want to make sure that it's not all the Indo that there's still plenty of support for the Pacific Island communities and I think in uh, the support and any foreign policy initiatives that come from Australia in the future, we need to make sure again that there is strong support for our near neighbours in the Pacific Island communities because we need to be doing more in this space. And by the way, the New Zealand government, the new New Zealand government has already announced additional aid, uh, which was I think 40, 714 million uh, extra over four years on aid with the majority going to South Pacific nations. So that's a bit of leadership from them and I think Australia would be well served to be doing the same thing. So I'll leave it there. Thank you very much. The Honourable Brumby, Professor Besley, invited guests, Bulibinaka and good evening. When I was first approached to come and speak on this topic about Australia uh, and China in the Pacific, I was a bit reluctant to to come and discuss this issue because there's already uh, a lot of discussion about this topic in the media here in Australia. 
And the views and opinions seem to suggest that Australia having this supposedly ownership of the, of the, of the Pacific needs to reclaim its dominance uh, and influence in the, in the Pacific because China was beginning to take up that space. And then it dawned on me, what may be absent in the discussion here in Australia is the Pacific perspective or the point of view that I can contribute in the hope in the hope that the Pacific will be better understood as the, region, as the region has become a contested space, not only for Australia and China, but other global players. And this concern was pointedly emphasized last week by the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum, Dame Mac Taylor in Canberra, when she said, and I quote, indeed the Pacific Islands region has been largely absent from the debates. Very little has been written and published from a Pacific Islands perspective. And the Pacific Islands has rarely featured in the discussions, except from a perspective of being vulnerable to China's influence. And, and this is where I'd like to contribute, to provide that Pacific perspective based on what I've seen and reported in the last, at least the last decade, when China slowly begin, began to, to come to the Pacific in a very significant way. So why is there a sudden interest from China in the Pacific in the past, say, 10 years? And what has Australia done to lose its grips on its so-called so backyard or sphere, sphere of influence? In the context of my uh, talk this evening, when I'm referring to the Pacific, Pacific, I'm talking about the 14 island member countries of the Pacific Islands Forum. All these 14 Pacific Island countries have diplomatic, economic, trade and people-to-people -people ties with both Australia and, New Australia and China, and some dating back as far back as the late 60s and 70s. But in the last decade, there has been a significant shift in how the Pacific engage in regional and global diplomacy. As in the words of the former president of Kiribati, his Excellency Anoti Tong, the Pacific needs to chart its own course and find its voice and place in the global arena. So my talk will focus on what I consider are four key game changes for the Pacific that have shaped how they view themselves, how Pacific countries view themselves, and their relationship with the rest of the world. The first game changer was building a collective voice in the fight against climate change. In 2004, when President Tong of Kiribati first talked about the, the impacts of climate change on his people in his address to the United Nations General Assembly, the whole world then realized that climate change was already impacting the low-lying islands, particularly in the Pacific. President Tong and leaders of the small island nations in the Pacific, like Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, and Nauru, and Nauru continue to raise their concerns at the annual gathering of Pacific leaders, urging, urging Pacific countries to support their call for global action. Following these urgent pleas from the smaller island members of the Pacific Islands Forum, the rest of the Pacific took up the fight and rallied behind these most vulnerable nations to urge the international community to agree to a unified global response to better protect the environment. 
civic leaders then issued joint declarations and statements and, communi and, and communiques supporting the Pacific position on climate change at regional and global climate negotiations. As a result, Pacific nations were recognized as global leaders in calling for action from industrialized nations to act responsibly and limit their greenhouse gas emissions. So this united and collective Pacific voice attracted global attention to the region. And for the first time, Fiji, a small island developing state, was chosen to lead the global climate talks last year. One of the lessons from this successful campaign in amplifying the Pacific voice in climate change was the strength in working together as a group of nations and the realization that their strength was in their numbers and in their collective voice. The second game changer for the Pacific is what is termed as the tuna diplomacy. Tuna has shaped regional politics and influenced the relationship between Pacific Island states and major trading, trading partners, including China. Through a new model of cooperation, uh, the parties to the Nauru Agreement, which, which comprises eight small island countries in the Pacific, they established what is called the Vassal Day Scheme to limit per se fishing access into their waters. The Vassal Day Scheme is the single most successful resource management model in the Pacific, using rights-based control over the, their fisheries resources. So under the scheme, fishing fleets are required to purchase fishing days at a minimum, minimum of 8,000 US $8,000 per day and also provide 100% coverage on, on all percent fish, fishing in the region, provide import transshipment of tuna, and an annual three-month moratorium on the use of fish aggregating devices. This has improved conservation and management of tuna caught in the eight PNA countries, while increasing the revenue share for island countries from 60 million US in 2010 to an estimated 400 million last year. The third game changer for the Pacific will be oceans management, or what is now being promoted as the Blue Pacific Narrative, where Pacific countries are called to exercise stronger strategic autonomy over the Pacific Ocean and its resources. In recent years, the Pacific has witnessed increased geostrategic competition, and the Pacific Ocean is at the center of this stepped-up engagement from new and emerging global partners. At the Pacific Leaders Summit in Nauru last, uh, early this month, leaders reaffirmed the Blue Pacific as the basis of asserting the region's solidarity on the global stage and to secure potential development assistance to drive collective ambition and aspirations for peoples of the Pacific. And in the words of Prime Minister of, Prime Minister of Samoa, Prime Minister Tuilaepa, Sailele Malia Lengaoi, and I quote, the Blue Pacific Platform offers all Pacific countries the capabilities to address a changing geostrategic landscape. The opportunity to realize the full benefits of the Blue Pacific rests in our ability <coughs> to work and stand together as a political bloc. And the challenge for us is maintaining solidarity in the face of intense engagements of an ever-growing number of partners in our region, and, end of quote. Under the flagship of the Blue Pacific Identity, 
Pacific nations are again building a collective voice and asserting their common values and concerns. The Blue Pacific is about shared stewardship of the Pacific Ocean and the recognition that Pacific Island countries manage at least about 20% of the world's oceans in their exclusive economic zones. And to make this happen, Pacific countries now realize the need to secure their maritime borders. The settlement of maritime boundaries provides certainty of ownership of the Pacific Ocean space, which is critical to managing their ocean resources, its biodiversity and ecosystems, as well as fighting the impacts of climate change. It was revealed to Pacific leaders in Nauru uh, earlier this month that more countries are now in the process of negotiating the 13 outstanding shared boundaries. Of the 47 shared boundaries covering the Pacific Ocean, 35 have now been concluded with treaties signed to secure ownership of these boundaries. The fourth game changer relates to the political transformation in Fiji from 2009 onwards, which in some ways, in some ways contributed to the deepening of relations between China and Pacific Island countries. After the removal of the democratically elected government in Fiji, the island nation was suspended from the Pacific Islands Forum in 2009, which forced Fiji to consider other donors and partners beyond Australia and New Zealand. The suspension was a major turning point in relations with Australia, pushing Fiji to become one of China's strongest allies in the Pacific. From around 2011, China's growth as a new power in the Pacific started to, started to increase as evidenced by its development assistance. And according to the Pacific Aid Map, which is recently uh, uh, provided by Lowy Institute, China's development assistance grew from 143 million US in 2011 to a significant 1.26 billion this year. This deepening of close relations between Fiji and China was almost like a staging point to demonstrate the level of support and commitment China was willing to give Pacific countries. Uh, as China's ambassador to Fiji, Mr. Chen Bo, uh, said, and I quote, China's assistance to Fiji is selfless and sincere with no political conditions attached. China's assistance to Fiji is unswerving and will not be influenced by the changing international and regional landscapes. It targets the well-being of the people, unquote. In Fiji's case, China stepped in to, to fill in a big chunk of the donor funding left by Australia and New Zealand. During that period, China committed uh, $316 million US million in development assistance to the government of Prime Minister Vorelli Bainimarama. And during that time, when uh, Prime Minister Bainimarama also visited Beijing a uh, few times, and President Xi Jinping made a state visit to Fiji, where he met with other Pacific leaders in 2014. Uh, and that is when I think China stepped up its cooperation with Pacific Island countries. The Fiji experience provided an inroad for China's stepped up engagement with other key countries key Pacific countries like Papua New Guinea, Samoa, and Vanuatu. This year, PNG, as the hosts of the APEC, APEC Leaders' Summit in November, is the focus of China's major infrastructure development, investing $1.9 billion 
to building roads and other public infrastructure to make Port Moresby ready for the APEC summit. These game-changing opportunities that I've shared have been catalysts for change for many Pacific countries, changed how they viewed themselves and their relations with others, and empowered them to make choices based on what is in their national and sovereign interests. Pacific countries now see themselves as guardians of the Pacific Ocean and its vast resources, and see the potential of economic returns as securing the sustainable development of their peoples in the future. They no longer see themselves as in the context of being small, poor, and dependent, but as large oceanic states with wealth and resources that is in great demand by global powers. As expressed in an article in April this year by Mr. Balkamar of Papua New Guinea, he said, and I quote, unlike the past, Pacific leaders are increasingly assertive and well-informed of the, of the geopolitical competition in the region. They have intelligent military and political advisors that are dedicated to consolidating their sovereignty and exploit, exploiting the current geopolitical tussle while acutely sensitive to any signs of bullying or cohesion, end of quote. Pacific countries now demand a greater share of the wealth and resources they own and want to be respected and treated as equals. It is quite refreshing to hear the New Zealand Foreign Affairs Minister Winston Peters in Nauru recently saying that his country's new Pacific reset policy aims to treat Pacific countries as equals and to do, do away with the donor-recipient attitude that has been the symbol of bilateral relations between the Pacific and many of its development partners. Through this amplified and collective cooperation as a group of nations, Pacific countries have attracted more global players into the region who are keen to partner with Pacific nations in addressing climate change and benefit from the tuna and other oceans resources. These new players have opened up new choices and provided alternative development partners for the region. Increasingly, we are beginning to see these new and emerging, emerging players like China, Taiwan, India, Indonesia, United Arab Emirates, Cuba, even Cuba, Spain, Turkey, etc. And that is putting pressure on traditional partners like Australia and New Zealand. So why is China a popular ally for the Pacific? In the past decade, China has entered the Pacific in a very significant way, like I had said earlier. Initially, China's interest was to counter Taiwan's influence and build its political support in the Pacific. But over the years, China has seen greater opportunities in the region's natural resources like gas in Papua New Guinea, seabed minerals, and of course, our tuna resources. China's expansion is also, as you heard earlier, is linked to its Belt and Road Initiative and that aims to expand its global economic influence through major infrastructure projects. Recently, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing outlined the four key features of its aid support to the Pacific. And these are, China as a developing country like many Pacific countries, understands the challenges they face in achieving sustainable development. China provides aid on the basis of respecting the wishes of the island nations without any political conditions. China's aid is aimed at promoting the well-being of the people. And China's aid does not compete with other development partners or donors.
these four principles are attractive to Pacific countries, some of them having achieved independence for almost five decades. And they feel confident to make their own decisions in the best interest of their own nation and its people, peoples, and to be recognized and respected as equal partners. The Pacific Aid Map by Lowy Institute revealed that apart from Fiji and PNG receiving the largest percentage of Chinese aid, there were also increases in Chinese investment in aid to Samoa of 169.7 million, Vanuatu with 190.45 million, and of course the Federated States of Micronesia with 86.23 million. Australia, on the other hand, remi remains the largest donor to the Pacific, uh, spending 6.58 million, according to Lowy Institute, in the last seven years, compared to China's 1.2 billion. Majority of Australia's development assistance is directed at improving uh, good governance, support towards the health and education sectors, and humanitarian aid, while China is focused on building major infrastructure in the, in the islands. Despite this reality, Australia has not been viewed favorably in the Pacific region. The general perception is that China holds a sorry, Australia holds a very superior and patronizing attitude towards the islands, using the island nations for its own interests, particularly in the global fight against terrorism and sec securing its borders, and interest interested only in the Pacific revolts at the UN and other multilateral agencies. And I think the reference earlier that we represent about 10% of the votes at the UN. If Australia is serious about being, prefer being referred as the partner of choice for the island's countries, then it must lead by example and genuinely interact with Pacific leaders on issues that concern them, like climate change, trade and economic relations, labor mobility, etc. In fact, since the rise of China, many Pacific countries are now within and closer to Canberra's radar because of the bilateral offers and assistance from Beijing. And uh, one of the recent examples in which has been reported widely is Australia stepping in to fund the new high-speed internet cable between Australia and Solomon Islands after national security concerns were raised about a Chinese state-owned company contracted to build the project. Also last month, Australia announced, it, announced that it successfully blocked China from funding a major regional base, military base in Fiji, a move that, now re that reveals intensifying, intensifying concern over geostrategic competition in the Pacific region. In conclusion, uh, the desire by Australia for the Pacific to be a partner of choice can still be a reality because Australia will remain the big brother to the small island nations of the Pacific. Many of the island nations remain dependent on the remittances from Australia, which the World Bank estimates to be around 120 million annually, which have positively improved the livelihoods of peoples and their communities in the islands. Australia has also greatly invested in securing maritime borders through, aer through aerial surveillances and new patrol boats. It has assisted the Pacific, its Pacific neighbors deal with natural disasters, maintain law and order, and restore good governance. This relationship is respected and valued in the Pacific. However, with the rise of China and other global players in the Pacific, 
Australia will also need, will now need to compete with these, these other powers if it wants to remain dominant and an influential, influential country in the region. If Australia wants to be a valued and trusted partner, that it ne then it needs to be attentive to the needs of the Pacific and act as a genuine, genuine partner, as articulated in Canberra last week by Dame Mac Taylor, and I quote, if Australia is concerned with how detrimental Chinese aid to the region is, then it also needs to start listening to what Pacific leaders are saying about it. If Australia turns a blind eye to the issue of climate change, then it will be a difficult journey for all of us." End of quote. Limiting the influence of China will require better partnerships with more open and honest dialogue with Pacific leaders. Day Mag warned that if Australia doesn't act on, on the Pacific's climate change concerns, then there may not be a sympathetic ear for Australia's concerns about China. Thank you for listening. Margaret, I want to start with you. You portrayed a picture which is really interesting, I think, from an Australian point of view, and that is, um, in I would say the mainstream debate about China influence in the South Pacific, critics of China will present China as the neo-colonial force, the one writing check, big checks to bribe um, developing countries with sweeteners, no strings attached, you can put the money in the Swiss bank account, no problem. And yet what you've presented is a vision of a China that's treats these countries more as an equal, um, and in which, in some respects, Australia is the kind of neo-colonial country, at least in the sense that we know better than you, whereas what you've portrayed is a, is a picture of a China that says, what do you need? Um, is that, you know, it, from an Australian point of view, this is a pretty stark contrast. Um, is, are you stylizing your, your, your depiction um, for the purposes of this argument? Or, or is there a sense that China's a welcome partner in a way that I think a lot of Australian, Australian mainstream policy people would find surprising and possibly worrying? If, if you've been following what's happening in the region in, 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 say, maybe two, three years, in the last two to three years, you begin to see Pacific leaders coming out openly, speaking up for China in response to the media reports that are international media reports about how China treats the Pacific. And one, one of those leaders that has spoken out quite uh, strongly is the Prime Minister of Samoa. Uh, and Prime Minister Tula Epa has said a few times that the way China treats the Pacific is different because it listens to the Pacific. And the assistance that China is giving the Pacific is based on what Pacific leaders are putting to China. Uh, so it's the development needs of the Pacific that they raise with China and that China is supporting that. Uh, and I think the Prime Minister of Fiji has, has also said that China is a friend of the Pacific because its development assistance is, is based on what the Pacific needs are. Uh, and if you, if you see the conversation that's already it's beginning to take place now in the Pacific, uh, and if you've been following the news also, uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Samoa is in China right now. Uh, and he was hosted by President Xi Jinping uh, on Tuesday. And now China is now beginning to, to convey this message that it's also going to assist the Pacific countries in terms of their concerns about climate change. So you begin to see 
the conversation turning to climate change also. And this is one of the major concerns of the Pacific, that you know, it's, it wants their concerns to be addressed. And China is already beginning to start that conversation with our leader, that you know, we, we share the same concerns that you have uh, on climate change as a developing country, uh, and we're here for you. Uh, so, and, that, and that was also reiterated to uh, the Prime Minister Peter O'Neill when he was in, in China in June this year. So that is what our Pacific leaders are now beginning to speak out and say that China is assisting the Pacific based on what their needs are and not the other way around. And that, the question of climate change, you've got a China that's, I think, unquestionably a leader on climate change, and you've got an Australian government that likes to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, John, just a quick, quick question. You talked quite a bit about infrastructure and actually a similar point that Margareta made around uh, how kind of geopolitical competition has reawakened interest in, in the South Pacific and is creating this weird environment almost of kind of competitive infrastructure investment. And I'm just wondering whether you sense that that may not actually be a healthy thing in the sense that where infrastructure investment may end up going may not be where it needs, where it's needed, but where it may be geopolitically most effective. Well, you've always, I think, you've, you know, you've always got that risk that politics will interfere with, with good public policy. Uh, we wouldn't know anything about that in this country. No, 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 no. <laughs> but you've always got that risk that it's going to interfere, and that you know that that needs um, genuine need will become a second place getter to, to um, political needs. But I don't think that's playing out yet at this stage. I mean, I think you know the reality is, I'm, as I said right at the start, I, I, it's, I've been to a few of the Pacific Islands. I was in the federal parliament in the nineteen. 80s, I went to one of the Pacific Island forums, which was on the Cook Islands, I think, hosted. So I know a little bit about it, but not not a lot. What I do know is, uh, again, as Margareta said tonight, um, small countries hate being patronised and hate feeling being patronised. And I think there's a fair bit of that feeling has come through about the way Australia has treated the Pacific Islands. Australia has cut aid and not surprisingly, China and others are coming in and competing. So I don't think that's a bad thing. And as I said before, if you look around our region, Pacific Island communities, but, but you know, more generally too, Indonesia and so on, their infrastructure needs are extraordinary and their aspirations are no different to ours. Those people, they want quality of life, they want climate change addressed. They want the opportunity for a good education, a career, a healthy lifestyle, and you can't do that without economic development. So I, I, don't, I don't see it as a bad thing. I think it's a long overdue injection of care and concern and funding into the Pacific Island community. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming um, on a Thursday evening. We're really pleased to, to have such a, a big and engaged crowd at an event like this. Um, and finally, to thank our two speakers, John and Margareta, for a um, fantastic discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you.